Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Well, here we are again, and my name is Sam Truitt. I'm Sparrow. And I am Andrew McCarran. (laughs) <laughs> and today we're going to look at a poem from the New Yorker magazine that we decided we would do a session on whatever poem was appearing in the New Yorker. There were two. And I chose the shorter one, just like the one page, uh, um, you know, clean. And, this, and the poem that we chose is entitled Spring by Ishion Hutchinson, and the date on it is May 31st, 2021. Yeah, I think all three of us are in consensus about doing that poem, that we want to do it, we want to discuss it, we want to confront it, we want to deal with all its uh, vagaries, and believe me, there's a lot of them. Uh Uh-huh. Well, my one assertion might be, though, that there's a recording of him reading it. Oh. Would you like to hear the reading before we talk about it so that we sort of are delivering this value-added aspect to our session? I don't think so. And this kind of dimension. Or should we we play it at the end? Play it at the end because uh, we only have so much time and that'll fill out the rest of the time. Yeah. I understand perhaps that approach. But at the same time... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a dimensional assertion and change and curve to the experience of being with this poem, particularly for our listeners, that mm-hmm. I think makes it, you know, that we should front end it. Is that okay with you, Andrew? Well, that sounds convincing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I That's dropped into it and listened to a little bit of it. And what was interesting for me was to have prepared a bit you know, read it and, you know, made some notes, you know, half an hour, most. And then um, I listened to the reading because I wanted to make sure I could access it. And it did inflect my way of being with the poem and with its continuum um, that I thought was interesting. I know. And I have to deal with that, too. You know, um, (laughs) but I think that it is a unique opportunity, frankly, and I think we should go for it. And then the advantage is that um, Andrew hasn't looked at it carefully. Would you say, Andrew, you've read it? I've read it about five times. Five times? Holy cow. Wow. <laughs> well, really me. I mean, I must say one of the big questions about this person is who is Ishian Hutchinson? Ishian Hutchinson is from uh, Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to, I sort of, I came to understand that after the reading. I was hoping we could go into it without ancillary information and just engage with the pulse self as it is. Yeah. Break in memoriam, Adam Zajewski. Cool as the breeze, spring comes and proves the proven blank, which was sorrow. A turbulent need, a healing. Who am I kidding? To say spring and to say so on the front steps just after noon in the bright cool of the day is a form of dissolution. 
How have I arrived at that? Your death is only two weeks old. Sudden and tender as the buds and the firethorn returning. And an old siren sound carrying on the breeze between two finches darting through shattered power lines cements a kind of comfort. I accept this. These cressoet tears you must have seen on a Krakow statue shrieked with rain. What arrives next is the marvelous phrase half sea, half land. Not yours, but close. Marvelous. My mouth, before I digress and then zoom away to teach them, Adam, you're to go to Lvov. Wow. Brilliantly read. It really uh -huh. kind of shuts my mouth like, uh, I, uh, I thought maybe this guy was, uh, a Russian, but he's a Jamaican with a beautiful accent. All the cruel things mm. I was going to say to him about him are kind of crashing at my feet in embarrassment. Yeah, I was very moved by his reading. It was interesting the degree to which he was capable of incarnating, I felt, his poem, which mm -hmm. I, I admire deeply. I mean, I, I can still look at it and have things we can circle around it, but... um you know, I, I felt something really solid there that um, I really dig, you know. Well, it's emotional, the way he reads it. I mean, it seems like he really loved this guy, Adam Zagajewski, whom he probably didn't know. And it's very sad that he died. And that's it. you hear that in his voice, I believe. Un contraire, dude. My reading of it is that he was a student of Adam Zagchewski. Um, really? I, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, that's really interesting. Yeah. That Adam was a student of the, of the poet? No, that Ishian was a student of Adam. Isn't that what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah. What makes you think that he was a student? Uh many um many different places um you know the direct address and it was interesting how he read them adam them adam was because uh, you can feel a, a little um slip um a broader reach in his evocation of adam at the end um you know calling deeper to um something beyond us as in first incarnation. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, 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 it feels as though his friend has died. This poet who was born, I think in, in Lvov. And I believe, yeah, I believe he taught at, um, the university of Chicago. Mm. Ah, yeah. And probably there's this connection, you know, Chicago, feel, I feel maybe that it's there. But I think that's sort of, you know, outside the text itself, which would be fun to talk about more and figure out, you know, how it breaks. There's a uh, very ancient, almost um, archetypal quality to the, uh, to the poem. Um, I, I, I feel uh, classical. Influencing mm. the, uh, the stories of the uh, of the Odyssey in particular, Louval um, oh. is a sort of uh, return to Ithaca. Then there's the uh, the mention of the sirens and um, a consciousness of travel by sea, the oceanic, mm. um, and it reads as an invocation as well. But maybe it's the ancient quality of the relational form of mentor and student that oh. uh, profound bond it's um i really love this really mm. yeah mm -hmm. i love listening it to I, it loud 
Yeah, I'm interested where you locate the kind of classical timbre of this poem. Um, you know, if there are specific places that you would point toward. Um, I felt I, I, I didn't pick up so much on that, you know, reference to Firethorn. Um, you know, but any specific plant of that nature, there are all sorts of associative things that one can draw from it. Um, and the landscapes that he actually describes, the shattered power lines, is not one necessarily. I mean, I think he's probably speaking from where, you know, Jamaica, right? He's Jamaican, Ushion. But I don't know that he lives in Jamaica. No, but the I think this half sea, half land, um, oh, yeah, that's seems to point toward toward what an island is. Yeah, um, yeah. But maybe he lives in and, Manhattan. And Ithaca was an island too. <laughs> I'm going to drop the you know. Well, I don't know. See, I I I don't know. One thing I would pick up on is his repeated use of arrive um you know and oh, that yeah? sense of arriving um in a place is, is inherently has a kind of epic um penumbra hmm. especially when it's the uh, return to some place right the nostos it's it's an elegy right you guys yeah. yeah, that's what I'm yeah. thinking. I mean, I think it's classically it may come from some Horace. I don't know whoever wrote the first classical mm -hmm. elegies because it reminds me of uh, of W.H. Auden's famous poem to Yeats, which suddenly I think maybe has a classical model. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, they all have sort of the same... Uh, echo and the same kind of rhyme and and you know um I, I would agree with him working inside of that firethorn structure the elegy yeah you know and also the it's uh, that the, red berry you know what the firethorn is right it's the pyracantha which is that thorn that has the red berries in the winter it's a it's a it's a sign of immortality, uh, eternity, whatever. You know, it's the combination of green and red. Although it sounds like sudden and tender as the buds on the firethorn returning, sounds like he's talking about spring. He's talking about the buds, not the little red berries, I guess. Uh, the, right, but it's springtime. Spring yeah, it's the buds on yeah. the firethorn are returning. Yeah. And and also that, that Auden poem begins with the weather. Maybe that's part of a... It's embarrassing, the three of us, such great scholars as we are, don't really know the classical uh, forms, but maybe that's how a classical ode, or elegy rather, begins, is with a, a, a notation of the weather. Because um, uh, Auden has that famous line, all the instruments agree. All the instruments agreed it was a cold, dry day, or something like that. Uh -huh. And this begins cool as the breeze. Spring comes, so it's like you start with the weather, and then move on. Maybe that's how a classical elegy is written. Uh huh. Well, I guess you know what I'd be interested in doing is actually just going line by line through this poem, and just I would like to. In fact, just sort of give you my reading on this poem. Let's okay. Go. Yeah. All right. So let's let's skip the outer scan of it and just cool as a breeze, which I don't find to be a particularly strong line. But, cool as the breeze. You know, too. the introduction of breeze is important, and then you know this idea of a cool breeze and then spring comes so written in the time of spring and and proves the proven blank which is sorrow so i believe that which is which was sorrow a turbulent need, need a healing so just looking at that i believe that what he's saying is that sorrow is healing am i correct hmm. yeah okay um 
Yeah, and then he's saying, and that it, it its characteristic is that it is turbulent, and that it is needed, right? Mm-hmm. And so I believe that that first statement um, sentence begs the question, for what? I think that's sort of the proposition of the poem, is, you know, sorrow is healing and it's turbulent and needed, but needed for what? That is my question, you know, and that's the Mm -hmm. question I'd like to answer, you know, looking at this poem. And then he says, who am I kidding? And I like, you know, how he reads it, kidding. And then to say spring, so he's now um, excised this word spring and put it in quotes or put it in quotes. And spring has a kind of double meaning, right? Mm. Um, you know, it also is associated with a lot of poems about spring to Wallace Stevens, to T.S. Eliot, to all, you know, to a kind of whole sense of the birth of Christ. Going back to, you know, before Milton. Going back to the... Birth of Christ? You mean the death of Christ? Right, the death. I'm sorry, I was getting confused. Because he's <laughs> born or something. I don't know. Leave it to anyway, me to figure it out. Yeah, to say spring. And and to say so on the front step. When you're working over a poem, right? These kinds of, these are big decisions. Um, You know, he's not trying to meet meet a kind of metrical form, per se. It's all kind of a little um, incarnated. You know, he's trying to write in an incarnate way, I feel. Um, But the repetition of cool is like a, you know, is sort of a move. And I don't know what exactly it means, except that he goes on to say that spring is a form of dissolution. Yeah. Actually, you know, and says, again, <laughs> uh, spring to say spring and to say so on the front steps just before noon in the bright cool of the day. That's all parenthetical is a form of dissolution. That's what he said writing. Yeah. Yeah. And so dissolution, um, you know, he's talking about this guy being dead, but it's more complicated. You know, because it all goes back to this, the proven blank, um, you know, which dissolution seems to echo, you know, seems to rhyme with. And then have I arrived? How have I arrived at that? Well, again, you know, what is that? That spring is a form of dissolution. Your death is only two weeks old. Sudden and tender is the buds on the fire thorn. We talked about the fire thorn. It is, you know, this evergreen returning and an old. I like the way he said siren. Serene, serene sound. That was cool. Like that siren really is a good insertion. Uh, but literally a siren carrying on the breeze, like an ambulance, right? Mm-hmm. Carrying, um, on, carrying on the breeze between two finches darting through a shattered, through shattered power lines cements a kind of comfort. Again, what kind of comfort? Yeah, that is a question. But I guess he's turning to the immediate experience around him as a kind of comfort, except that it's two finches. And that's what's interesting for me is those two finches in relationship Mm. to him and Adam, right? And Mm. yeah, and here I had sort of like a little line at it, you know, which is, yeah. I wouldn't want to do too much of this, but just as a, an experiment, I would have changed it to and an old siren sound carrying <laughs> two finches between the breeze because that breeze is a repetition of the first line. Mm-hmm. And that would be more interesting. Do you know what I mean? What do you think, Andrew? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about rewriting the poem, but uh, yeah, I just you know that's just a trick, you know, just a little transversing, and it it sort of seems more interesting, I thought. But maybe it's there anyway. Yeah. Well, is there some sort of significance do you think to the finch, the the ornithological specificity of that species, that type of bird? And it, yeah, it's a yeah. very good question. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know much about bird symbols. I'm wondering what what a finch. 
all the things that are and can be associated with Finch. Yeah, I'm wondering that too. I don't know either. Uh huh. Finches. And also, are they, they're Finches in Jamaica. We still haven't located the poem, I don't think. Yeah, finches are pretty common birds. I right. Mean, you look at a finch, you're not, it's not like, like the other day, I have this new softball team I'm trying to start. And somebody said, oh, look over there. It's a heron. A heron was flying by uh, and uh, by the mountain here at uh, Tremper Mountain in Phoenicia. And, you know, a heron flies by pretty low. And you look up and it's like a, a mystical symbol, even if you, whether you believe it or not. It, it, just to see it, it's a rarity, whereas a finch is no big deal. Finch might be the, if if he is in uh, Jamaica, finches might be the pigeons of Jamaica. It's it's not impossible. Dig it. Yeah, totally. Well, those big herons are like watching pterodactyls. <laughs> see, then I would also go back to a little bit of my thesis and that he takes <laughs> comfort from the universe around him. And then he's just describing that there were two uh, finches darting through shattered power lines. Yeah, it's almost just like he's coming to terms with the uh, the new communication that he's going to have with uh, mm. his deceased mentor and teacher. That that he's coming to terms mm. with. Doesn't he say, "I accept this"? He's yeah, that's the next line. Yeah, he's understanding how the conversation. Um, may evolve between the living and the dead, and it does. Hmm. You know, in some level of energy or memory, and, you know, the conversation continues. I mean, my, my uh, the guy I'm writing on, Bill Mullen, he died in, in 2017, and through doing um, subsequent drafts of this book on him, I've been continuing that that relationship and that conversation in a pretty profound way. Hmm. And like, in some ways, like it's. He's teaching his final lesson on some faraway shore of dreams. Mm -hmm. And nice. you're making the, the gesture, too, making the effort to communicate with him in a sense. Yeah. yeah. The, you're within you know, I think a, that's part of it. A, yeah, you're within an elegiac universe yourself in relationship mm -hmm. to Dr. Mullen. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, so you guys got my rap that, you know, that he takes comfort in the two finches and then, you know, just yeah. what's around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think he's got this, I think, a really uh, good line. You know, I accept this. And then these creosote, I, that says creosote, doesn't it? But he yeah. read it differently. Yeah. or something. I noticed that, yeah. And then tears you must have seen on a Krakow statue streaked with rain that's a pretty good line i know it's it's the first uh non-grammatical line isn't it it's the first line without a uh it's the first sentence without a verb no it's wonder i like it a noun phrase and it's pretty mysterious uh -huh. i mean i don't like this poem but i must say that line does kind of stick in your head it, it, and it's pretty visual too. Like, uh -huh. I guess the idea is, you know, the way uh, rain can streak down. You can see you see statues that have these weird streaks on them. Right. That, and creosote is is black, right? A creosote is the same as um, like charcoal. If you if you it's burn pitch. something, it gets uh, it's creosote. pitch. It's pine pitch. Oh, yeah, is that right? Many a chimney that's gone up. You know, it's the cause of many a chimney going up in flames. Oh, right. So, so, but it refers to this blackened color, I think. Definitely. So that it's yeah. like there's tears. It's as if there's streaks of tears on this uh, statue. I guess, you know, the, as if coming out of the eyes of the statue are black streaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he comes back, and then he says this marvelous play, phrase, which I believe to be a quotation from uh, Adam's poem, I go to Le Veuve. And then, you know, so that I think situates not yours, but close. Now, that's interesting. You know, not your, um, not your Veuve, but... You know, but close, like half sea, half land. I'm not sure I understand. You know, we'd have to find what that reference is, actually. And then marvelous, you know, which is now 
a word in italics. Is it? Yeah. It didn't print out on my print oh, out that way. Yeah, it's printed in italics, hmm. which is a, you know, we've got spring, then we've got the quotes around half land, half land, and then spring. But marvelous. So it's a, it's a moment of reaching out past the poem. Uh-huh. That marvelous has a little bit of magic, I think. You know, where he's reaching out beyond the poem. And this is all within a very conventional digression on this poem. And, you know, and, um, you know, some other things we could talk about, Sparrow. But, yeah. you know, I do find that use, you know, cool. I'm Mao, you know, so there's this sense of speaking to this cat, I believe. And then he says, before I digress, before I digress, I'm not sure, like, I gotta go teach class. Right. And then Zoom. So you have a very contemporary reference, a way to teach them now. Yeah. And then Zoom away to teach them Adam, teach them Adam, teach them Adam. Mm -hmm. I believe he's making a leap in that comma. Teach them Adam is to teach them like an original, original, um, ality of seeing the world as it is Mm -hmm. or through, you know, poetic, um, vision, uh, probably more likely that. Yeah. And then you're to go to love, mm. which I think has to be our next poem. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. I really had not noticed that repetition of the word marvelous. What arrives next is the marvelous phrase, half sea, half land, not yours, but close. Yeah. Marvelous. I mouth before uh, I digress. I guess he's like kind of struck by the word marvelous. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you, Sparrow. I miss that repetition because he has these different ones, you know, the use of the arrive and stuff. Yeah. The arrive, you arrive not through any transition, spatial transition, but through some other portal. Uh, And then I, I believe that repetition of marvelous is a little bit for him the configuration is the of that threshold. Hmm. It's entablature and shape, which I believe goes back to Europe, which I believe goes back to England, which I believe is sort of this uh, syncophantic thing that the New Yorker a little bit has toward the old world, and uh-huh. um, yeah, and they're very resistant to really more. Um, I, I guess I don't. Is that right, Sparrow? I don't read The New Yorker. I'm really just sort of having, I'm just running a tape. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, it's what one feels. You mean like something very old-fashioned and Eurocentric about their poetry. And it's not like, hey, I'm going to buy a hamburger and sit in the parking lot and read it and eat it. That's not how it sounds in The New Yorker. It doesn't sound American. It doesn't have that clipped, like, she's got nice pants. That's how we talk in America. We talk straight, clear, uh, in uh, Anglo-Saxon words. We don't talk, uh, you know, uh, in this kind of, kind of romantic poetry style that, you know, this could be written by Wordsworth uh-huh. if Wordsworth were 272 years old. Uh huh. Yeah. I you know, they're not written in an American, I, I, I American speech. Um, Wordsworth deserves some credit. He was uh, moving toward direct speech, toward the inherent poetic nature of diction, of of common speech. You know, Mm. he had a whole thesis around that. He was pointing in the right direction. He just couldn't, uh, you know, cut off those last um, kind of cables to uh, kind of, um, I don't know, one's historic time. I wonder what kind of cables are holding us back. Well, and also it could be that he was perfectly modern in in his time, and it just sounds archaic now. I'm not I'm, I'm not attacking Wordsworth precisely. I'm attacking the New Yorker for a certain kind of style that they accept in a poem, such that you notice well, seen- when there's a there's a line with no verb. <laughs> you know, when there's a sentence without a verb, you're like, whoa, that's unusual for the New Yorker. Uh-huh. Nice. Um, so I don't have a sense if, if so you're saying, Sparrow, that you feel like that's true at this present time. Yeah, it's still true that they're uh-huh. interested in these kind of 
formal shapes to a poem and and a sound. A poem has to sound poetic. Like a, has it has a, a musical quality to it, right? Well, I mean, all poems. Uh, to me, uh, you know, we sat in the parking lot and ate burgers has a music to it. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just a different music. You know, and what I would call maybe like a kind of Cleveland kind of music. And this uh-huh. has more like a kind of English, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, lowlands, uh, the lake country uh, music. You know, it has a kind of archaic music, I, I'd say, to me. And sound. Let me read I mean, the, the first three lines. Cool as the breeze, spring comes and proves the proven blank, which was sorrow, a turbulent need, a healing. What year is this? This could be 1931. This could be uh-huh. 1902. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. what makes you know that this poem was written in the 21st century, where people are, like, talking to each other on tiny little machines that they hold in their pocket? Uh, pretty much nothing, you know? That's the mention of Zoom. The mention of Zoom, no, I have to zoom away to teach him. It's a pun, you know. But uh, uh, even there, it, it's, you know, yes, it's a slightly, uh, what's the word, uh, colloquial f- phrase, zoom away. But yeah, but he's it, also consciously using it to reflect the um, conditions of our lives um, near term, you know, and within the last few months, I guess. Uh, and especially because he's an academic poet. Yeah. Uh. 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 Oh, what do you uh, mean? Uh, well, he's zooming to teach. I think he. I know he teaches at Cornell University. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's where I flunked out of. Maybe that's why I'm so yeah, bitter I mean, about this guy. Yeah, he teaches at Cornell University, and I believe he studied at the University of Chicago. Maybe not. Oh uh, yeah. So that was my supposition. Now here's. Can I just look at? Can we just look at something? Yeah. So following up where you uh, left it, Sparrow, this, uh, this kind of thing of the sudden and tender mm-hmm. as the buds on the thorn bird. Now, from your perspective, is that sort of sudden and tender as the buds on, like that, do you feel like that is um, insufficient in a kind of colloquial verve? I mean, I'm not saying poems no, have to be colloquial. Uh, no, no. I mean, I'm not saying I prefer poems that are colloquial. I'm right, just right. saying, uh, I uh, the no, New Yorker I, will never print one. <laughs> yeah, 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 but I'm but I'm trying to point to this line and asking if that's indicative of like a um, whether from an American standard that would be written differently. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think that's colloquially. No. As a I mean, bug. putting so, together two. Uh, so nobody line. says. Uh, Nobody says uh, this hamburger I'm eating is soft and mellifluous. You know, they just say it's pretty good or it sucks. You know, like people don't use two adjectives in in colloquial speech, than to my knowledge. Sudden I mean, and tender. In terms of a Shakespearean line, you could almost pull it off. You know, if you just altered it slightly. You know, and then it could be like the first line of a poem: sudden and tender as the fire thorn buds. Like that would be a good would that I think that's five hmm. stresses. Oh, for know, a sonnet? Yeah, like a kind of elegiac sonnet in like almost like Shakespeare, sudden and tender as the fire thorn buds. Like that feels sudden and tender. Fire thorn buds. Like the buds are tender, but um, you know, it's sudden, fire thorn buds. That's a uh, spondee. I just think sudden and tender. It's just a lot of the time he does these kind of tricks that, uh, in other words, how do you get a poem published in The New Yorker? You uh, you can't just say sudden. You can't just say tender. Sudden and tender don't exactly negate each other, but it kind of gives some sort of feeling of complexity. Like just uh-huh. afternoon in the bright cool of the day. If you said just afternoon in the cool of the day, uh, you're you're on the slush pile. You know you're going to get rejected. But if you yeah, say but- bright cool, bright cool, almost a kind of oxymoron. You know that that kind of it gives the appearance of a kind of intellectuality. But I don't 
I don't see the real thoughts in here. It doesn't, uh-huh. you know, it doesn't well, I, make much sense to me. Yeah. I sort of want to bracket that for a second, if I may, Sparrow, because, you know, Andrew, you haven't said hardly anything about, you know, the what your reflection is on uh, the poem. Yeah. Um, well, I don't have that much to add. Um, I'm feeling a little out of ammunition on this one. I mean, I think it has the elevated tones of an elegy. And I do feel um, there is something to uh, the um, academic poets who are work in the academy and publish in um, academic poetic journals. I think there is a lot of um, thought to audience and uh, in venue. And I, I, I do feel that I like this poem, but if I guess if I was going to be critical of it, it feels like it is um, a poem that was um, definitely written with a telos for publication in this journal. So I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Well, I guess, you know, if you're... It's commercial um, status, I guess. It's it's um, value as a commercial artifact. I, that's the piece that I think rankles me a little bit, but I don't want to uh-huh. sound preachy and judgmental. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean, and maybe that's kind of cool. You know, if you're a baseball player, you want, like, good stats, you know? So this is useful, you know? This is acoustic publishing in The New Yorker, I think. I guess it, it represents that. Um, the one thing I wanted to um, go back to and where I am beginning, Andrew, to feel like there's, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm trying to shore this thing up. This sudden and tender sparrow, uh-huh. That kind of antithesis, that suddenness and also tenderness. Yeah. I sort of feel like it kind of assonates with that marvelous, with the nature of the marvelous, too. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, half sea, half land, sudden and tender, you know. I, I find, you know, a little bit, I don't think I would be able to marvelous I mouth. That kind of, um, it's a very stagey, you know, but at the same time, I find it, you know, honest, marvelous, I mouth. I, I, I don't think, I feel a little uncomfortable with the construction. One of the interesting things is the, uh, the way he kind of addresses the reader from time to time. I mean, it shows this influence of the New York school, I think, where the poem begins in this very kind of solemn way. And suddenly he says, who am I kidding? So, whom is he addressing? He's addressing the reader. He's suddenly mm-hmm. kind of self-conscious, almost like like you're saying about a Shakespearean monologist who uh, who's suddenly self-aware. Like, who am I to write a poem like this? And uh, uh-huh. you know, when he says, "What arrives next?" is the marvelous phrase. It seems like he's also. Uh, suddenly turning to us marvelous i mouth he's he's huh. addressing the reader in this kind of unexpected way or also how have i arrived at that that's that's him also so he kind of alternates between yeah. writing the poem in his pretty old-fashioned way and then i think being sort of self-aware enough which might come out of Zagajewski that that might because mm-hmm. I looked at like the first seven lines of a Zagajewski poem and it did look a little bit like this so maybe mm-hmm. that kind of alternate self consciousness uh, mm-hmm. is is a Zagajewski uh, uh, mode. Mm-hmm. I can dig that. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think it's interesting to focus on that. Who am I kidding in that direct address and what leads from that? He doesn't use the word you at any point, but it's an implied you, definitely. And then um, I believe also there's a little bit of a sense of him. Like, I think he's in uh, Ithaca. I think he's in Cornell right now. (laughs) Now he's he's no longer in Jamaica. Yeah. And that the islandy references then become part of his uh, iconography that he shares with Adam. The sense mm. of coming from a place, I believe. It yes, feels that way. And I believe the one thing I, I'm going to finish that is that spring is in quotes in part because he's walking out a door and it's been winter and he opens the door oh. and he steps out and it's spring. Like, 
it's a little bit like uh, Dostoevsky, you know, the brothers Karamazov, uh, hmm. the line, just think, um, Karamazov, all this grief and then pancakes. <laughs> I don't know that line. And the poor yeah. guy is from Jamaica. He's used to things being really nice and paradisical and warm. And he's stuck in like the world's bleakest. Cause I, uh, you know, was there for two years, uh, Ithaca. It's like, mm. it's, it's bleak, it's gray, and then it snows. And then it's more bleak, more gray, and then it snows more. At least in the early seventies. I don't know. Maybe they still don't get as much snow. It anymore. gets a long, no, it gets a long winter. Yeah. This, this summer is pretty beautiful. It's pretty lush there, isn't it? Yeah. The summer is, is kind of uh, the summer when everyone's gone. Because my uh, girlfriend stayed there one summers, and I was there, and it's like it's not only uh, physically beautiful, but it's so serene. Everybody's there... gone. Hey, hey, Sparrow. So look, you're you have um, local knowledge. Are there fire thorns there? But one, I, are there I fire thorns notice. there? Are there shattered? You... Are there? Wait, wait, wait. Are there finches? Yes. And are there, are there shattered power lines? doesn't like, sound very Ithacan. I mean, it, it's an incredibly well-run little city. I, the only thing I remember is that it's called Forsythia City. That's one. I think that's its, like, title. So there's a lot of Forsythia. That's pretty much the beginning and end of my botanical knowledge about the place. But it does seem like there are probably finches. And it's not impossible that there are shattered power lines. I mean, uh, at least briefly. I don't know where that Shit. image it's yeah. a, It is a kind of a haunting image. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a, it, you know, obviously reaches uh, this idea of power line is interesting. And maybe that's part of uh, being a big league uh, poet. A You're big a league poet. Ivy League poet. It's a shattered <laughs> one. Yeah. And also yeah. you can't... Uh, oh. You can't say, oh, yeah, my life is completely uh, untroubled here in the land of Ivy League academia. I mean, it is the quintessential Ivy League, uh, no, quintessential ivory tower where mm -hmm. it's literally on top of a hill and the whole town is underneath it. And it's this august you know, very ivy-clad place. Eminence. And down below, all the slaves live. Uh-huh. That's a model that um, I've seen repeated through many college towns. The, uh, one thing I... Uh, uh, Andrew, did you want to say something? Not really, just that um, that the half-sea, half-land, I in, in some ways, um, Ithaca is, because it's on the um, one of the large oh, figure lakes. Uh, oh, my oh. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That would have to be reconciled. That Can I ask you, uh, Andrew, uh, when he, that, I thought you were going to say something else about that line, which is what I was thinking. The, the line is, what arrives next is the marvelous phrase, half sea, half land. Not yours, but close. Didn't you take it to mean that he's quoting someone who isn't Adam uh, Zagajewski? That's how I, oh. to me, that's obvious. Well, he's the yours, not yours. Oh, right, right. Is he practicing? There's a poetic form of speaking to the dead. There's a Greek word for it. Do you uh -huh. guys know it? Not me. Nikia Thanatopsis. There's a guess. I like that. Yes, yeah, so there's. Famous, it could uh, be Thanatopsis. It should be. It could be Thanatopic. And then yeah. um, there's a famous like Longfellow poem called Thanatopsis. I think. Good. Yeah. Not yours, but close. The, the we have to know more about Adam, and that's where we want to go. Yeah. The Nekia. Uh, Nekia, which is the Greek word for the right through which the dead are called up and queried about the future. Oh, uh, yeah, like necrological, right? Necrophilia and, comes and from it, that root. It does. And uh, this is uh, present in Book 11 of the Odyssey, where um, Odysseus encounters the deceased Tiresias, uh, at the mouth of Hades. Oh. And the passage is called cool. Nekia. I think I'm mispronouncing that, though. Uh-huh. N-E-K-Y-I-A. Oh, Nekia. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So you think this is a necrophonic Excellent. poem? <laughs> well, I mean, not yours. So uh, yours, you, there's a... Hello. 
Yeah, I wanted to talk about the uh, the comfort of the siren. I thought that was kind of interesting idea. <laughs> I mean, we have a siren here in Phoenicia. Yeah, I mean, we have a noon siren, and we also have, which is a little bit off, it's at 11.58, since I do my, you know, literary activities till 12.01, I'm very conscious that the siren is slightly off. And uh, is there something comforting about a noon siren? Yeah. So I just wanted to, what I was saying was, so I think the yours, uh, how much did you guys pick up? I said, you know, there is a your, but it's the possessive you. Did you hear that? No. Yeah, I was just following up, not yours, but close in terms of this necrotic, necrotopic aspect, you know, in its close approximation to his direct address to Adam, you know, it, it really is um, him, him speaking to, to Adam and it's the form of that intimacy, you know, which I feel, you know, is that sudden and tender. And mm. it, it, but it, I do believe, you know, I do believe that it is a form of speaking to the dead. I mean, not yours, but close. If my reading is correct, in other words, it's not a, I'm not quoting you. I'm quoting someone who's almost you, Joseph Brodsky. I don't know. I don't know what close would mean. You know, it's a, it's a little hard little insulting to say to someone, well, this isn't your poem. It's someone close to yours. Some other Russian? I don't know. Maybe Cheslav Miłosz. Yeah, something like that. The poet of uh-huh. Krakow, right? Krakow, Poland. Yes. Well, yeah, I think that, you know, uh, within the Eastern European continuum, I think that there is a sense of taking real pride in being part of a continuum, you know, of um, poetic aspiration and, you know, poets in Eastern Europe, particularly in that kind of like, you know, 20th century, every which way, um, tearing families apart. You know, I was, um, I've been reading or I just finished, you know, read uh, Elie Vassell's Night. Or well, that's right. It. You mentioned that yeah. to me on an email. And um, behind all of that is the shadow that is still present. You know, that shadow never left this world. And, is that, you know, it's uh, just, we is that Poland? Every year. It's, uh, that's coming out of Hungary. But oh. Elie Vassell went through all the all the big camps. I mean, it's a oh. harrowing story of his, him and his father and of human conscious and of human. Um, it's a real send up of Western mm. sieve, mm. frankly. But it's a it's it's a form of direct memoir within a historic set that elevates it to a high form of literature. Yeah, it's a great book mm. and trilogy, I guess. You know, there are two other books. Oh, and that's right. One called Dawn. Oh. So, Andrew, can we discuss this uh, uh, half sea, half land? I'm looking at this, and really this poem, which I, I'm still against, one of the things that's kind of interesting about it is um, after he says, I accept this, he's got the two finches darting through the shattered power lines. Somehow this presents some kind of comfort, cements a kind of comfort. Okay, I accept this. And then the poem really like just crumbles into fragments. Like it's really unclear what is going on in terms of the argument, logic, the necrological logic of the poem. Then he says, these creosote tears you must have seen on a Krakow statue streaked with rain. That leads him to the marvelous phrase, half sea, half land. What is going on? What the hell is the half sea, half land? How does that all fit into... The death of this guy, that he's, he's half Digging, alive, right? half dead? Uh-huh. I think I, what happens is he enters into the consciousness of Adam. You know, he's having this moment, this I-thou moment. Mm. So imagining the creosote tears you must have seen, this was in the past, on a Krakow mm-hmm. statue, sleep it rain. And in that uh, encounter, the share itself, um, that's really the... Um, the foundation, very Buberian actually, right? The foundation of the creative act. And what arrives uh-huh. what arrives next is um poetry. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess it's kind of somewhat um charming 
in not necessarily a pejorative sense, you know, but um, sort of charming, you know, the way you can, the way I feel like he's trying to be charming with Marvelous. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's trying to charm him with this mm-hmm. phrase "half sea, half land," trying to do a kind of oh. magic charm. And that that and that Buberian thing, he's kind of um, seeking to uh, charm it. Um, and then the thing that really, more than anything else, stands out for me is this phrase "creosote," or as he phrased it, "chrysote," "chrysote." Um, tears. He's describing his own tears. Oh, okay. am I wrong? I mean, I accept this. These creosote tears. These are his tears that he's describing. I believe you. And there's the you. Holy cow! I had it um, marked You're up. Right. Marked up. You must have seen on a Krakow statue streaked with rain. So they're not real tears. Am I wrong? Or they're such tears. They're so such um, such uh, heavy tears that they are like scalding, you know, the metal, you know, like, you know, eroding Mm -hmm. the metal. uh, It's funny because I see them. I see them on stone. The the creosote uh, streaking the stone like a like a statue in a park. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I was sort of seeing the statue as metal. Well, uh, I, I think and there uh, is that either way is up above. Yeah, I know the cement. Well, that's mm-hmm. just cementing Cement's comfort. A like, kind of comfort. Like you receive comfort, you know, you have a certain amount of comfort. It could actually be yeah, like I, this. I think I believe that the kind of comfort, again, is his like sudden appraisal of, oh, I've stepped out and it's spring and we've had a, you know, hard winter and you died. And suddenly I'm confronted with the kind of exuberance that is, you know, all this grief and then pancakes. I think it's the death. It's one possibility is your death is only two weeks old, sudden and tender as the buds on the fire thorn returning. That is a comfort, the comfort of buds returning. But then when the siren appears and the finches dart through the sound of the siren, that siren know. sound cements the comfort. First, you have the comfort, then it's cemented. Uh. All right, so here's the scoop. Is Next time, then, I think we should do the uh, poem to go to love of. 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 Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.